Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to go deeper in the Scripture, but just isn't sure how to go about it. We're here to help you think and to live and to love biblically, while never losing sight of the real purpose of Scripture, which is to show us the glories of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Matthew Tilly, and you're listening to episode four of the podcast, Welcome. at this point, but man, is time moving fast. Uh, For me, uh, that's because things have kind of ramped up quite a bit all of a sudden, it seems like. And I'm pretty grateful for it, to be honest about that. Um, When Christmas time was here, the New Year season, that that time in December was here, I have to admit I was pretty concerned about how things were going to shape up, specifically what were God's plans for me and my ministry, how would God provide for my family, Um, How could I use this time that I'm sort of in this transition in between state? Uh, How can I use it wisely so I can be prepared for whatever God has for me next? And it was around that time that I decided to do two things. Uh, One was kind of double down on some efforts that I had started in the past uh, to finish up a Master of Divinity program, uh, essentially a professional degree for people in ministry ministry leaders, pastors, that sort of thing. And then also to start this podcast, uh, to talk to you all, uh, the handful of you that listen to this week after week. So thank you for doing that. But I started that around this time as well. And and all the while, I was hoping and praying and working on trying to find full-time employment. So week one of January, pretty busy week. But it was really a lot of me working, trying to find things to do, trying to make sure that I was uh, using that time. Uh, but it still felt like I was waiting on stuff to happen. Week two, the seminary program really got up and running in earnest. Uh, a lot of lot of projects uh, kind of came on my radar. I'm not all due that week, of course, but you knew there was papers and projects that were on the and reading that was on the docket. But uh, it all felt pretty manageable. Um, starting to feel a little worried at that time. Week number two of January about about the job situation. Um, and then week three, uh, we were on a bit of a high. You heard me talk a little bit about that in the last episode. Got a chance to preach at uh, in the pulpit of Freedom Baptist Church and uh, told you all about all that. But uh, then at the end of last week, I got word that God had provided a job for me. Um, it has a lot of uh, flexibility built into it, which is you know very grateful for that. So I'm able to to do a few other things, but. Um, um, as it will, and jobs, jobs are this way, uh, it's definitely going to require some more work from me. Uh, but ultimately, I am so glad that, that the Lord uh, provided this uh, for me so that I can provide uh, physically for my family. It's uh, definitely a blessing from heaven, so I'm very grateful for it. And of course, I, I mentioned the seminary work. That classwork is ramping up, and I'm learning quite a bit um, at this point. So uh, it's uh, it's good, and it's really requiring some things for me, which, again, necessary and helpful. And then uh, in the last week or so, I got a call from the church that I used to pastor um, several years ago out in Winston-Salem. The pastor of that church now, he called me. And he asked me to come and fill the pulpit there um, starting this coming Sunday. So that's, uh, what is that, the 31st of January. Uh, I'll be preaching there at 11 a.m. and then again at 6 p.m. And then I think uh, he's asked me to come and preach Wednesday, which would be the 3rd of February. So that's at Crestview Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. And it's on Union Cross uh, road and that's uh, that's a, a church that I was there for a few years and really enjoyed uh, working with the folks there. 
Um, they, uh, they, they've been so kind to me through the years and I'm looking forward to being with them. If you're in the area, would love for you to pop in and say hello. Uh, that would be awesome if you could. Uh, so I've got a lot to be thankful for and, and the Lord has absolutely provided for my family. And, and, and as I tell you this, and this, I'm sort of, I'm sort of leading all this up to say this, this thing to you that one of my failings has always been is when things get busy like this and, and they're starting to get busy, really busy in earnest, that my devotional time with the Lord tends to take a back seat. Now, I'm telling you that to my shame. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's a good thing at all. Um, but I can attest to the fact that when I do spend time in the scriptures, when I do spend time talking to the Lord, my spirit feels better. Even my body and my mind feel refreshed. I'm, I'm really better equipped to handle whatever's on my plate at the time. But some reason, I allow busyness to supplant that, de that devotion. Now, I wanna, as I've confessed to you, you know that's where I am. But I also want to tell you, I mean, I'm fighting it. I'm working hard against it. I'm succeeding, of course, in the power of the Spirit some days. I'm failing, of course, in the power of the flesh other days. But I can tell you that I am fighting for it to just to keep that time in my life, to enjoy that time in my life. And because I'm dealing with that, I imagine there's at least a handful of you all that are listening that might deal with that as well. And I want to encourage you to, to make time, to work to make that time. Uh, that may mean you have to get up a little earlier, go to bed a little bit later. Um, that project you think has got to be done today, maybe you can put it off a little bit. Maybe let's take a back seat. Or maybe you could just stop being so doggone ambitious. Maybe there's something that you could say no to. Um, Martin Luther, um, the, the reformer, he uh, famously said that he had so much to do that he couldn't, take, he, couldn't, he couldn't get by with less than three hours of prayer before he got his day started. Now, he was prone to hyperbole, I understand, but, but you don't necessarily have to get three hours of time on your knees, but you certainly need, need to get some. Um, and the more time you can put to it, uh, the better. In fact, the more you have to do, as I think Martin Luther was, was alluding to, the more you have to do, the more you really need that time with the Lord. So may God grant us all the grace to seek his face earnestly and humbly. Samuel chapter 3, and if you've been following along in chapter 1 and 2, and you're not limping a little bit in your spirit by the time you get to chapter 3, you've just not been paying attention to the first two chapters. Uh, there are glimmers of hope. Uh, you've got this, this young boy, Samuel. He's the title character of the book, Samuel, and he's there. Um, so there's some interesting things going on with Samuel. So yeah, there's some good news, but it's against a pretty bleak backdrop of pain, of suffering, of disappointment. I mean, the opening verse in chapter three really drives the nail in the coffin. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision, uh, the Bible says. You've got these people in Israel, they want to hear from God. So much so they actually valued God's word like a, it was precious. It said it was like a rare jewel. But the nation as a whole just wasn't hearing from God. So there was this, this moment, this time of silence. It seemed like God was just not speaking. 
In chapter one, you've got sin wrecking families. In chapter one, you've got you've got the 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 hurt, the spiritual, the emotional hurt of people as a result of living a live as you please lifestyle. That kind of mentality that really uh, marked all of the book of Judges. And then in chapter two, you've got the religious class. These 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 priests who are supposed to be serving the people and, and serving the Lord, and they are completely and utterly failing the people. So, you know, you'd be forgiven for being a little bit helpless as you go into chapter 3. And, you know, you, you kind of got this nothing matters kind of uh, feeling. And you definitely get that vibe off of Eli, the priest. Uh, he's gotten some really bad news in chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2, look at verses 27, uh, kind of through the end of the chapter there, he's heard from this prophet that basically said, listen, your boys are going to die. Your family's going to be wiped out. You're no longer, your, your family line is no longer going to be serving as priests. And again, it doesn't really speak to his emotional state in the scripture, but it seems, based on everything you're looking at here, it's either not bothering him or he's just ignoring it or something because he's just sleeping it away. So, so you'd be forgiven to, to wonder, as I'm sure people did in that day, where is God? What is he up to? Why is he being so silent? Um, that's certainly the feeling a lot of folks have, I think, in this day and age. Uh, particularly, I think, you know, church folk have that feeling. I mean, you look around at the world and you know, you've got political upheaval. You've got the health care issues with the virus and all that. And, and you look at churches and a lot of them are in decline. Um, and just about everywhere you turn, it seems like we're just not hearing from God. Where's God in all this? Well, I, I want to point out to you first that God is there. So I want to make sure you know that. He is in this, even in this story, and he is in our day. He is He is in the picture. But the first thing I want you to notice, and you'll see this um, in chapter 3, that nobody's looking for him. He's there, but they're not really looking for him. So, well, they want to hear from God, and they do. I don't know exactly what it is they want, but if they were really looking for God, they would see him. Notice who's serving the Lord before Eli in verse 1. It's this boy named Samuel. We've already talked about him. We've referenced him. That's the same boy who was given to his mother Hannah in chapter 1. She, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see she begged and she pleaded, God, please give me a son. And God gives her a son. So is God in the picture or not? Of course he is. That's the same boy. When, when she gives him back to the Lord, he goes and serves God faithfully in an environment, in a religious environment in chapter 2, that's full of priests who don't even know God. This is not, this is antithetical to serving the Lord, yet he somehow, uh, just against all odds, finds a way to, to grow. In fact, if you go to chapter 2 and verse uh, 26, it says he grows in the Lord. I mean, he's, he's actually growing in the Lord. So, so, so God is right there in plain sight. Just look at this boy Samuel and you will see God, his hand, his, his actions, his work, the fact that he, he takes care of the underdog, the fact that he is there. He's got a message. He's going to save the people. That message is there, but nobody's really looking. Also, while, while God isn't necessarily giving any new revelation, I mean, you go even to chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3, you, you don't really see new revelation. There's a little bit, I guess, with the judgment of against Eli, but really there's no new revelation to the children of Israel at this time. But that doesn't mean God's been silent. 
you just go back a few books. I mean, we're not even talking about that much further. And you're going to see within a couple of hundred years, there are pages upon pages. We're not just talking about little blips here and there, but just reams of documents of direct quotes from God. That's what the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you go back and look at those. And I know if you're doing a Bible reading plan uh, and you kind of hit those books, sometimes they can sort of bog you down just because there's a lot of detail in there. But pay attention to the, the headings on most of those chapters. It's, and the Lord said, and this is from a word from God. It's These are direct communications from God. So sometimes God is right there saying what he's saying. He's, he's, he's revealing himself. He's, he's making a way for the people to be holy, to have a relationship with him. But they've chosen to be ignorant of his word. He's communicating plainly and clearly, in fact, but nobody's looking for it. If you go just one chapter early, we're in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. If you go to chapter 2, again, I mentioned this prophet who comes in in chapter 2, verse 27. And God has sent this prophet to tell Eli a message. And he says, Eli, there's judgment, there's condemnation coming to, to your house. But as far as I can tell, again, I think the scripture tells us what we need to know about the situation. And there's nothing in the scripture there that suggests that anybody seems terribly upset about this. Business seems to be just continuing on as usual. And sometimes God is right there explaining what's about to happen, calling us to change, trying to get us to, to repent, to turn around, but nobody's looking for it. Even in her passage, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I, and I hope you will read that if you haven't already, go back and read it. You will see that three times God speaks three times before Eli even recognizes that maybe, just maybe, this is actually God talking. Sometimes God is actually right there and he's actually speaking, but nobody's looking. One thing you need to know about God, there's many things to know about it, but one thing for sure is that he is communicative. He is communicative. He's a communicating God. In fact, the things we do know about him boggle the mind. But everything that you do know about him, boggle the mind as they do, you know because he has revealed it to us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. God is a communicating God and he has been communicating from times past and will continue to communicate. So God is there. He's always there. He's always communicating. He's always making himself known, but nobody's looking for him. There's a great illustration of this in Exodus chapter 16. You've got Israel. They're starving and they're out in the desert. They want food. They're begging God, please feed us. And God does what God does. This is what he often does. He hears our prayers and he answers the prayer and he gives them food. He just, the way God does things sometimes, he just makes it appear right there on the ground. They wake up in the morning and there it is. And what do they do? In Exodus, Exodus chapter 16, uh, verse 15, they literally have no idea. They act like they have no idea what it is. That's what they actually do. They, they look at it and they call it, it says in verse 15 of chapter 16 of Exodus, it is manna for they wist not what it was. They are literally looking at it and saying, now what is that? What is that? 
Do you not remember asking God for food? Do you not remember that God is the one that provides for you? And this is this is the way that 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 you and I do. This is the way the whole world does. We're looking everywhere for what we think we want, except the one place that we one can get it and that has what we want and can provide what we want, and that's the mighty hand of God. So God is there, just nobody's looking for him. God is also in this passage, but nobody is listening to him either. As much as Samuel was sincerely trying to serve the Lord, it was clear that he was not used to hearing from God. And, and you know, I, we can forgive him for that. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a young man. Uh, don't know how old exactly, but he's, he's young. And he, he's never, he's been in this, <laughs> I know he's at, the, at the, the priest's house, but it's a pretty wicked environment for the most part. So you can be forgiven. But when he first hears the Lord, it's the Lord talking in verse 5 of chapter 3. He hears the Lord calling him, but he thinks it's Eli calling him. And he finally gets it in verse 10. Oh, it's the Lord calling. And of course, Eli helps him to see that. But more important than hearing, literally hearing the voice, because he did hear that at least, unlike Eli and unlike others who seem literally the, the, the voice of the Lord seems to be falling on deaf ears, at least with, with uh, Samuel, at least he's hearing him. But more important than just the hearing, the, the voice or the sound waves hitting his ears, was the attitude that he received the message. If you go to verse 10, the last part, where he says to the Lord, he says, Speak, for thy servant heareth. What's Samuel doing? He's ready to obey. He wants to do what the Lord has called him to do. <clears throat> I've read that in the Hebrew, and I'm not, I don't want to pretend to be a Hebrew scholar because I'm not that, but, but I've read that in the Hebrew, there isn't a separate word necessarily for hearing and obeying. They actually have one word called Shema. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I'm pretty close, hopefully. Uh, but this one word, Shema, which essentially means kind of pay attention to, to heed, to, to hear something, but to do something about what you hear. Uh, James kind of hits on this, this theme a little bit in, in chapter 1 and verse 22, where he says, listen, it's not enough just to hear God's word, but you also need to do God's word. And Israel may not have had open vision, to quote uh, verse 1, so they're not hearing these sort of a normal, everyday communication from God. They're, they may not be having that, give them that, but they're also severely lacking in obeying the clear commands that God had given them. In fact, when God did have somebody who would listen and obey, Samuel, what did God have to tell him? A message of judgment, a message of condemnation. You look at verses 11 to 14, and you'll see, if 1 Samuel 3, verses 11 to 14, you'll see that the message that he gives to Samuel is a message of condemnation, because up until that point, really nobody's listening. He, got, he, he sent this prophet to Eli, and nobody's listening. Nobody's doing anything about it. Eli knew better. His sons at least had opportunity to know better. There's nothing. And, and the point is that there's a point when God, when, when, when people have stopped looking at, to God long enough and God essentially has to say, listen, I'm done. And as a parent, you may have gotten to that place. I know I have where you, you, you're you just one more time and you put up with it. You put up and say, no, I'm done. I'm done. God, of course, infinitely more gracious and kind and loving than you or I are. But there is a point that there's a bridge too far, a, a point of no return. Jesus speaks in the New Testament of a sin that can't be forgiven. 
he talks about this as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you go to Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes about the fact in, in Romans 1, 28, that there are men who have been given over to a reprobate mind. There's a point where we're, yeah, we're complaining about what God has, has done for us or not done for us. So don't know what he's up to. What is he going to say? What does he think? We want this word from heaven. We want, we want something, but, but God has given us a clear word. And too often we're not even willing to obey the simple things of, of his word. And to those that are Christians that are listening, and I imagine a lot of you would claim to be Christians that are, that are listening to me, don't miss the clear word from heaven. As much as, and I say this as one who is in the, the throes of seeking what God has for me next, and I will not make any, uh, any, I will not pretend anything about that. I'm absolutely in that place where I want to hear that word from heaven. Go here, do this, open that door. I want that. But we can't miss the plain word that we've been given. Jesus says that if we want to follow him, we need to come after him. We need to, this is Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Mark 8, 34, where he says, deny yourself to put your rights, your life, your wealth, your dreams, put them off to the side and take up your cross and follow him to say, Lord, I'm yours. My life is at your disposal. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and get prepared for not just death, but I'm going to get prepared for execution because my life is not mine. I'm following you. you. All that's to simply say God's there in this situation. God's there in your situation. The problem is nobody wants to obey what he's saying. God is also there, but nobody is leaning on what he's saying, leaning on him. Eli had received a word from God in chapter 2. I've already alluded to that a couple of times. Don't know if he was just putting it out of his mind. I've done that before myself where you get some bad news and you just like, just don't want to think about that right now. Maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe he just didn't believe what God had to say. That's possible too. Didn't believe God meant it. Just didn't register with him. I don't, I'm not sure what Eli was thinking. Eli's boys clearly had no respect for God. They just did what they wanted to do. Didn't even bother. I'm just struck by that, that passage in chapter 2 where it says that they didn't even know God. They didn't even know Yahweh. Why didn't they even bother to get to know who this God was? And, and the people of the nation of Israel really weren't looking to God as, as, as they were just doing what was right in their own eyes. I mean, that's that's literally the, the mindset. What do I want to do? What feels good? That's what I'm going to go after. And then you have this man, Samuel. He hears a word from God. And I want you to pay attention. Look at verse 19. Pay attention to what it says that he did when God spoke to him. It said that Samuel did let none of his, speaking of God's, words fall to the ground. What Samuel started doing is what no one else had done, or at least not in recent times at this point in chapter 3. He counted on every word that came out of God's mouth. He didn't gloss over any of it. He didn't let anybody doubt it, at least of all himself. He expected everything that God said would come to happen, come to pass, and come, come, to, come to pass exactly as it was stated. He would not let one of God's words fall to the ground. He started truly trusting in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, not as some 
super spiritual concept, but really leaning in on what God had to say, trusting and expecting something from God. And it says in verse 20 that the people could tell. They could tell that he had some sort of line to the Lord because it said all of Israel knew that Samuel was established to be the prophet of the Lord. There was no question. This was the guy. This was the, when he comes on the scene, things are changed. Things are different. He's the one we need to pay attention to because Samuel had real faith. He leaned on what the Lord had to say. And then what happens in verse 21? And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. It's, 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 a, it's a turning point in this book because up to that point, People are looking to their own wisdom. The, the, the priests are no help. Their families are in shambles. Everything is falling apart. But here is one who comes in with real faith, leaning on what God has to say. And it says, finally, the Lord reveals himself. Because Samuel showed up with real faith in the Lord, trusting in God's word, bringing God's word, God shows up with exactly what the nation needs. Now, one of the things it's tempting to do as you read this and start trying to apply this, I want to be careful not to do this, is to put yourself in Samuel's shoes. Because Samuel is not a foreshadow of what God could or would or will do through you. Your faith is not perfect. You're, at least in this way, Samuel is not a foreshadow of you. Now, he's going to do some stuff later, and you're going to see yourself all in it because he is... He's going to make a mess of things. But right here, in this small way, he gives us a signal to a greater prophet who would come and a greater priest who would come. And his name, that greater prophet, that greater priest is Jesus. When Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, he would say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. He comes in full faith and assurance that there is a redemptive plan. I mean, Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Philippians 2 tells us. He comes and he makes himself of no reputation. I mean, that's leaning in on the plan of God. The, 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 the Son of God throughout all of eternity knew with, with the Father, knew what this plan was, and was all in on it. He, he humbles himself. He submits himself to that in perfect submission to the will of the Father. And anyone who knew him came in contact with him. They could not have a lukewarm reaction. He was You were all in or all out on Jesus. They had to know he had a line to the Father. Which is why it brings me back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Remember verse 1, I read it earlier. He said that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God is a communicative God. But it says, hath in these last days. So he's always talked, but in these last days. And we are, according to the scripture, the way that the scripture talks, the times from Jesus forward really are the last days. These are the last days. He says, hath in these last days. So now spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. That's Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. You see, Israel thought they were looking for a word from God. But what I think they really wanted was some big signs and wonders. Israel thought they wanted to hear from God, but they, they just didn't want to obey what God had already told them. So they wanted something new, I think. 
Israel would have been forever in darkness and silence, except there was a faithful priest, a faithful prophet who leaned on the truth of the, of the word of God and that through him, the whole nation would come to hear from God. Yes, God spoke to Israel, but he has and always will most perfectly speak to the world, to humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. See, Israel needed to hear from God, and that was only possible through one who foreshadowed the perfect communication from God. And we have that perfect communication from God today. Before I launched this podcast, um, back, um, I'd gotten some input from some friends uh, about some questions that they would like to see answered from a biblical perspective to try to get what the Word of God had to say about some topics. And some of the questions were given to me by those friends. Some of them were questions that I posed and said, hey, what do you think about this? And um, one of the top rated questions that I got, I sent out the survey, and one of the top rated questions that, that kind of really bubbled to the top was this one. Um, the question was, I'm an introvert. How should I go about sharing the gospel and obeying the Great Commission? Now, one of the things you need to know about this question is it's very personal to me. It, it really encapsulates a lot of information about me. Uh, this is really who I am. This is really the desire of my heart uh, in, in both parts. Part one, that I'm just not the most sort of outgoing guy. Yeah, I can stand up and preach in front of you know, large audiences and things like that. No problem with that. But, you know, not the guy who's going to go and make small talk on an airplane or, or a bus or anything like that. I'm really going to kind of keep to myself, generally speaking. I'm kind of quiet in that way. But I also, at the same time, have a passion to try to obey the scriptures where it's clear. And this is one place I think it's as clear as any. So, so it's very personal to me. And, and of course, when things are personal to you, I want to confess to you, when things are personal to you, it's very difficult to be very subjective uh, about the answer. But that said, I, I think this is going to be true of anybody looking into God's Word for answers to the needs of their heart. And I think you have a duty to be submissive to the Scripture and let it speak for itself. And again, we are necessarily going to bring our baggage to it, and I'm bringing mine. I'm trying to tell you what those things are. But I think as long as you can be aware of those things and do the best you can, of course, with the power of the Spirit, to put those pieces of baggage off to the side and let the Word be the Word, let it speak to you, I think it can help you. So I think the, the place to start answering this question about how to share the gospel and obey the Great Commission is to actually start with the Great Commission. And that's uh, found in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18, 19, and 20. And I think it's important to just read it. Um, you, can, you can follow along, but I just want to read the words out, and I want to make a few comments about this passage as, as after we read it. It says that Jesus came and spake to them, and he came to speak to the disciples there. He, this is really towards the, at the end of his ministry, and, and within um, a few verses, he's going to be ascending up into heaven. So he's just talking to his disciples pretty much for the last time here, and he says he says this to them. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe 
whatsoever, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. First thing I want to point out out of this passage is that Jesus never, ever said to do this stuff, the Great Commission, share the gospel, be an evangelist. Never he said to do this stuff because somehow you have arrived. You, you're smart enough. You're good enough. You're outgoing enough. You've got some personality traits. He never said any of that. He just said, go because, and he says there in that passage, that first he starts off with saying, I have all the power and therefore go. He says, go because he's got the power to sustain you. In fact, it's important to notice who he's talking to. He is talking to some men who went in, who would in the book of Acts, Acts chapter four, verse 13, be called ignorant and unlearned. So they, they, they had no leg up on us intellectually. Now, certainly they had the Holy Spirit and they were overpowered in the Holy Spirit and there was a spiritual component to what was going on, but these were men who would not have a leg up intellectually. They would, in some cases, be considered cowardly and self-centered. I mean, they had all the flaws of all kinds of humanity. They were those kinds of people, but what transformed them from those regular folk, blue-collar guys who had been working on fishing boats to become people who could speak to thousands on the day of Pentecost and so many would come to Christ who would pastor these, these, these churches who would be persecuted, become great men of faith. How would that happen? Because the Holy Spirit empowered them. So God never asked us to do these things because we had the right attributes. We just don't. But second of all, notice that there's a lot of ways a lot of tactics, if you will, that you could use to do what we call evangelism. But I want to notice this here. Nowhere in that passage, in fact, really, if you go to the testimony of Scripture, I don't think you'll see it anywhere, that there is ever any command on you or me to make converts, to convert people. There is this idea of baptism that's in this passage. We see that we're baptizing people, which is essentially the outward sign of what has happened inwardly. So baptizing does happen, but the baptism is a product of the work. It's not the work. So it's not my job to go around converting people so I can baptize them. That's not the, not the message here. The gist of the message is because Jesus is powerful, I need to go and I need to teach I need to teach something. I need to, it has the idea of making disciples, you know, sharing and showing the truth of Jesus. And then God takes over from there. So the work is not going and converting people, convincing them. No, the work is simply sharing the truth. And yet conversion will happen, but that's God's work. Third, at the core of evangelism, what, what Jesus is teaching us here, that the one phrase that you could really zero in on, what is the, 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 the command at heart here? And it's the command, teach all nations. And that, that has the idea, as I've already suggested, it has the idea of making disciples. Uh, it, it, the task at hand then is to find creative, purposeful, and I would say ongoing ways, because again, until Jesus comes back, I think we're supposed to continue to do this. We're supposed to find the ways to show and share the truth of Jesus. Now that happens when we go, as we are going, go and teach all nations. So every aspect of my life, 
not just going on the overseas or going on a a, a, a missions night or or, or a, 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 what they call soul winning and all. Those are all great things to do and should be done, but that's not the only ways to fulfill the commission here. We are supposed to do this as we go throughout our life, our natural, ordinary, daily life. There should be a sense in which we're going and teaching all the nations. It's also happening as you're baptizing. So as we do this, there are going to be people who come to Christ, but when they come to Christ, we're not done. This is part of the process. They come to him, they are baptized, they identify with Christ, but there's so much more to that. They need to grow in their life, uh, in their spiritual life. And so therefore it says that it's happening as you're teaching. If you go to verse 20, you'll see that as you're teaching, so when people grow in their faith and they become students of God's words, th that's what's going to happen. So it's never enough. In fact, the job is not, quote, leading someone to Christ. Don't get me wrong. That is a powerful thing. That, that is absolutely the difference between death and life. Absolutely. But as, as Paul writes, some water and others plant, and God's the one that gives the increase. I, I just recently uh, was reminded of, of a man that I, that I know, uh, a friend of mine named Walt, who the Lord brought him to salvation. I got to be in the room, and I could say that I was the one who, quote, led him to the Lord, and I will, I'll be glad to take that, that moniker. But it was not my, I was literally, if, if I can use the, 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 the um, farming um, metaphor, I was literally picking fruit that someone else had cultivated and worked on. And ultimately, as we know, God is the one who gives that increase because somebody had been praying for him for years. So, so the point here is, if I just think about his leading to Christ, well, got one. No, that's not it. There's so much more. Just speaking of Walt, I mean, the, he needs to learn more about Christ. And that would be true of every one of us. We all need to learn more about him. And that's the job. And along that way, there will be conversion. Along that way, there will be new people we meet and there'll be teaching. But ultimately, it's not just about leading people to Christ on its own. It's about leading them to know him and to follow him more. And fourth, this was interesting to me that Jesus, who I would say, and I don't, I don't know if this is even arguable, I would just say flat out it's the truth, greatest teacher on earth. Greatest teacher ever lived. He spent a few years with these 12 men and he gave them this commission in Matthew 28. Yeah, he taught them, absolutely. And yes, his spirit empowered them, absolutely. But then he said in so many words, I mean, really that's the point of this passage, your turn, it's your turn. That's the Jesus pattern. That's the Jesus method. That's what he modeled for us. And that's what he told us to do, to teach the people, to train them, to help them, but never to be done with that. And it's not just for a couple of us to do it. It's for the whole of the church. All of those who follow Jesus will be people who do this, who teach people, who teach people, who teach people. So how does an introvert share the gospel? Well, let me give you five quick things. You got to tell people. Acts chapter five, or Acts chapter eight, verse thirty-five. Philip, he's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and what does it say? He opened his mouth. You can't tell him if you don't tell him. You got to tell him. So you just have to tell somebody. I know that sounds simplistic, but sometimes you forget that you do have to open your mouth. Second of all, you got to worry less about getting people saved because God is the one who saves, but 
pointing them to the Savior. He's the one who will save. And I have to tell you, this is the thing that gets me gnarled up so much, which is why it's I'm being emphasis, emphasizing that for you right now, is because I get a little concerned. Like, if I say the right thing, do the right Stop that. Focus on Jesus. Point them to him like Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew brought Simon Peter to Christ. Christ was the one who saved him. So worry less about saving people, more about pointing them to the Savior. Third, you have to understand that this is likely going to take some time. I think there's a there's a sense, I know I have it in some of the things of the uh, things in my walk with Christ where I want things to be instantly changed, instantly different. Some of that's part of our culture, right? We're in an instant, instantaneous culture, but that's not how a lot of this works. Some of it's going to take time. It takes time to just spend time with people, get to know people, show them, answer questions for them, live a life that is a godly life in front of people. And that's just going to take some time. It might take, I use Walt example, it took years. His friend had prayed for him for many, many years, but that was his salvation was the result, of course, God saving him, but God used many people around him to point him to the Savior. Uh, so you have to take, it's going to take some time, but number four, uh, you have to know that it's going to work best with people you know. And this is where the introvert in me is kind of happy about this. I, I'm actually struck by how many people we actually do know. And of those people that we actually do know, assuming that we live a life that reflects our Savior, you'd be surprised how many of those actually have questions about Jesus, about your faith, about the scripture. There's, you'd be surprised how many of those people would go to church with you, have a conversation about spiritual things with you. But we fail to recognize that because we're so worried about quote unquote reaching the masses. Why don't you reach your backyard, your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers, your brother-in-law? Why don't you reach those folks, have those conversations, and then the Lord will provide the increase. And then the fifth and final thing, you don't forget, I want to, I can't overemphasize, this is a spiritual, a supernatural thing. So all the planning in the world, not to say you should be willy-nilly about it, it's a sacred thing, I understand all that, but, but all the planning in the world won't come close to doing what the Holy Spirit can and will do with a yielded person. My job is not to do the work, but to be yielded to him to work through me. So in a phrase, you got to want to, <laughs> then you got to trust on God to do it, and then just start sharing Jesus with people you know. Now, practically, that can look like a lot of different things. I've, I've just started uh, recently uh, with a little discipleship group, but we've got a couple of men who we're looking to, to, to invest in each other spiritually so that we can then go out and repeat that and replicate with small groups of disciple makers all over the all over the uh, the area and, and try to see some the Lord work through that. That may be something you're led to do. But it could also be go talk to your pastor about what your church is doing in the area of evangelism, how you can plug into that. Or it might be just you've got a couple of friends at, at work and you go to lunch with them and just start a conversation about the Lord over lunch. But it is something that Jesus told us to do. And <laughs> I'll leave you with this. If you think that Jesus is really good news, if the gospel is really the good news that you think it is, why in the world wouldn't you want to share that?
Thank you for joining me on Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. Uh, please follow us on um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You're probably listening to that now. But uh, if you'd prefer, you'd rather watch this. You can see my lovely face in action um, on YouTube or Facebook. I put the videos up there if you like that. Just search Seeking Christ in the Scriptures on those platforms and you should get our page there. But if you found this show helpful or interesting in any way, would you mind sharing it with somebody? Uh, maybe you see a post on, on some of the social media channels about this podcast. Would you maybe share that or like it? That'll help us. All these things will go a long way in helping us get the word out about the show. Y'all have a great week and tune in every week for a new episode of Seeking Christ in the Scriptures.